Please remain standing for our epistle lesson, which is also our sermon text from Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, Blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. And indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of mine own which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. We desire, Father, that we would be conformed more and more into his death, and into his resurrection. So we pray that as we read your word today, you would accomplish that work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. Last time that we were in the book of Philippians, we looked at chapter 3, at verses 1 through 3, and we talked about at the most fundamental level, what does it mean to belong to God's people? At the most basic level, what does it mean to belong to God? And we saw that Paul in verse 3 said that those who belong to God, the true circumcision, as he says, are those who worship God in the Spirit. They rejoice in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We worship in the Spirit. We worship under new covenant realities and with a true and inward, heartfelt uh, worship of God, we rejoice in the Christ that He sent, and we put no confidence in the flesh. We said the flesh was the best of human achievement apart from God. That's how Paul uses the word flesh here. And today, we'll see in greater detail what Paul meant by having confidence in the flesh. And we'll focus our time today on verses 4 through 11. You'll remember that Paul is warning the Philippian church about a, a particular danger from a group called the Judaizers. It was a group that promoted a dangerous combination of formalism, a reliance on a, on a mere outward symbols and ceremonies, and a works righteousness. We saw their doctrine summarized in Acts 15. Last time in Acts 15.1 it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. 
unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you undergo the old covenant ceremonies, you can't be saved. You can't go to heaven. You can't be accepted by God. And in verse 5 it says, Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It's necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and order them to keep the law of Moses. Why did they need to keep the law of Moses? Again, in that context, it's for righteousness. So you see, on the one hand, they have the, the reliance on the ceremonies. On the other hand, a reliance on works righteousness. And these Judaizers that would go around and, and preach this message and, um, and debated with the apostles weren't lacking in zeal. You see in verse 2, Paul, Paul calls them workers. He says they are evil workers, but they are workers nonetheless. They are zealous people. But zeal can be misplaced. Zeal can be detached from Scripture and from God's priorities. And Paul knew it's all too easy for young or poorly instructed Christians to be deceived by an impression of superior spirituality, by an impression of zeal, or a call to go beyond the basics, to, to not to mature in the basics, but to advance beyond the basics of the gospel in Christ. It's, it's far too easy for those of us who are not instructed, for those of us who are young in the faith, to be impressed by the zeal of the workers like the Judaizers. They would follow Paul around as he planted churches or any time that they would find groups of Christians and they would try to help them in their doctrine, to complete their doctrine, to complete uh, what they really needed to be saved. They would tell them, you know, it's good that you have trusted in the Messiah. It's good that you've come to put your faith in Israel's coming king. We've done that too, but we are Jews. We have the scriptures. We have the oracles. We have the promises. And, and we have the ceremonies. We have circumcision. What Paul didn't tell you about circumcision? Well, that's, that's basic to being God's people. You have to have that in order to be saved. You, the Christ wants you to keep the laws and the ceremonies of Moses in order to be counted right before God. But they were not helping Christians. Paul unmasked their true motivations in Galatians 6.12 when he says this, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. See, the Judaizers' mind Minds were set not on heavenly things, but on earthly things. And in doing so, they became enemies of the cross of Christ. As Paul describes them at the end of this chapter in verses 18 and 19, he says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. The Judaizers wanted peace. They wanted freedom from suffering. They wanted to be able to please God in their own strength. Paul, on the other hand, was heavenly minded. Paul was willing to suffer persecution and the loss of his goods 
and all things for the sake of his Lord. And so, in verses 4 through 6, to illustrate to the Philippian believers and to their opponents the sufficiency of Christ apart from law-keeping, Paul here provides an account for us of his zealous days as a law-keeping Pharisee. And, And the purpose that he does this is so that he can point out that if anyone has reason to boast in their keeping of the law, if anyone has reason to have confidence in the flesh, as he puts it, it's him and not the false teachers, not the zealous Judaizers that might court the Philippians. Look with me at verses 4 through 6. Chapter 3 says this, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. This was Paul's former confidence. In his list, he he begins with things, with privileges that were bestowed on him at birth. Not all of these were works. Look look at at the first few items he lists there. He says that his was a circumcision on the eighth day, meaning Paul wasn't a convert. He had, he had grown up from infancy in the faith, in a family where the regulations of the law, which you were required to be circumcised on the eighth day, Paul grew up in the faith, and he grew up in a family that, that kept the law with a, a, a studied exactness. They did it correctly. He was of the stock of Israel, he says. He was in the most favored nation, a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and therefore an heir to God's covenant promises with them. In Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, he says this of Israel, Israel to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. That was Paul's people. But even more than belonging to Israel, Paul could trace his lineage to his tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And being able to to trace your lineage to your tribe after the exile was a a difficult thing to do. There was a lot of intermarrying in captivity. There was a lot of of confusion and coming back and keeping records was difficult, but Paul could trace his lineage to Benjamin. His was a pure-blood family from a blue-blood tribe. This was the tribe that supplied Israel with its first king. Paul could tell the Judaizers, I have royal blood in my veins. I can trace my lineage back to King Saul, which is probably where Saul of Tarsus, probably his namesake. It was also the tribe that had the city of Jerusalem within its boundaries. He could tell the Judaizers, not only am I descended from royalty, but my tribe, the land allotted to my tribe, contains the capital city. It contains the temple. And even more than that, he says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning that Paul's family had jealously retained the language and customs of his Hebrew people. His family was so committed to the tenets of Judaism that they sent Paul 
who was a brilliant mind, to study in Jerusalem under the great rabbi of the day, under Gamaliel, probably one of the greatest rabbis of all time. So even just at this point, you could look at before he's done anything, Paul's covenantal heritage, his devout home life, and his schooling, among other things, were impeccable. The Judaizers could ask for nothing better. In fact, the Judaizers, Paul's challenge is that probably none of them could match his heritage, his home life, his upbringing, his schooling. And yet, he added more to these privileges as an adult. He was in the best denomination. He belonged to the most conservative and faithful branch of Judaism, the Pharisees. In our, in our day, Pharisee is synonymous with, with hypocrite or, uh, or someone that's very sinful, but in, in Paul's day, that would have been a commendation. There were never many Pharisees, and they were known to be strict observers of the law, great keepers of the law, those who, who studied the Bible uh, zealously, who had large chunks of Scripture memorized. To be a Pharisee would have been a commendation in Paul's day. That's why Jesus tells the crowds that if they are to enter heaven, their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the group that were most zealous for the traditions of the fathers, as Paul puts it in Galatians 1.4. And he says in that passage that he had more zeal than all of his contemporary Pharisees. So he is, he is in the best church, in other words, and he is the most zealous member of that church. If any, if any Pharisee was going to, to point out the up-and-comer and, and who you should keep your eye on as a devout person, they would have all pointed to Paul. Paul was so zealous, in fact, that he persecuted the church. He says in verse 6, he not only believed the right doctrine, but he publicly opposed the wrong doctrine, or what he believed was the wrong doctrine. In his mind, he was like Phineas in the Old Testament, who burned with zeal for the law of God and slew those that he believed were bringing defilement and judgment on the people through their sin. Paul, Paul's zeal was not just to know the right things, not just to be devout, but to publicly oppose anything that he believed was against God's law. And the recitation of his credentials reaches a crescendo in verse 6 where he audaciously exclaims that he was blameless when it came to righteousness in the law. It says, according to the law, blameless. Now, I don't believe that this means that before Christ, Paul thought that he was sinless. That would have been um, antithetical to even, even Jewish thought. But it is a way of expressing exemplary conformity to the way of life prescribed in the Old Testament. Nobody could have pointed out to Paul and said, you're, you're a slanderer, you're a liar, you, you have stolen, you've dishonored your parents. There was no public charge, in other words, that could stick. Consequently, no one could argue that Paul's conversion to Christianity was attributable to his failure under the Old Covenant. This is Paul's former confidence, confidence in the flesh. This is his, his boast, if you will, to the Judaizers, to the Philippians, and to all of us. Paul's, Paul says, if anyone is going to make it 
into heaven, if anyone is going to be acceptable to God by their devotion, by their law-keeping, by their strict observance of God's ways and God's ceremonies, if only one of us in the room is going to make it, Paul would say, it's going to be me. And he would probably be right. Perhaps the best analogy for Paul's former confidence is found in Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 10. You remember the story. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus puts his finger on the problem immediately and says, Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good. That's God. And tells him to keep the commandments. Tells him to honor his father and mother. Don't steal. Don't murder. And, and the rich young ruler tells him, All of these I have kept from my youth. What do I lack? But Jesus, it says in Mark 10.21, loved him and told him that there was one thing, in fact, that he lacked. It was the only thing that mattered. The rich young ruler and Paul and all who trust in their own works lack Christ. Sell everything you have, he told the rich young ruler, and follow me. Come with me, have faith in me. Paul, in giving his account of his former life, is admitting that he made a similar mistake. Preacher Robert Hall says this, quote, We see from the apostle's account of his experience that it's very possible for a person to have great zeal for forms and ceremonies and yet be totally ignorant of the spirit of true religion. We may be very zealous for one particular creed, opinion, sect, or denomination, and yet be very defective in Christian spirit. This temper leads to a malignity of feeling. There may be sufficient in such religion for us to hate one another, but not enough to cause us to love one another. End quote. What, what the preacher Hall says there perfectly describes the blind rage of Saul of Tarsus. As he says in verse 6, as he persecuted the church, voting for the death penalty for Christians, witnessing their executions, trying to force them to blaspheme, he even says elsewhere. Paul was a very zealous, devout, law-keeping Pharisee. And Paul, at a fundamental level, was filled with hatred and unable to see it. What a difference we see in the martyr Stephen, who died at the hands of Paul. You remember Stephen, before the Sanhedrin, looking up, it says that his face shone. It was like the face of an angel. And as the Pharisees of the Sanhedrin gnashed their teeth in rage and cast him out and began to stone him, he cried out to the Lord, saying, Lord, don't hold their sins against them. Paul was there. And Paul saw a man who was able to meet death with a zeal, a love for God, a peace, a certainty of salvation. And he was able to fulfill the law. He was able to fulfill Leviticus 19, to love his neighbors as himself and to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, even as they murdered him. Stephen 
although obviously well-versed in the Old Testament, did not have Paul's pedigree. But Stephen had Christ, and so he had everything that Paul's pedigree could not gain him. And that brings up the question for us today, doesn't it? Paul said this was his former confidence. If anyone may have confidence in the flesh, where is your confidence today? Is it like Paul's former confidence in the flesh? Is it in the ceremonies? Is it in your denomination? Is it in belonging to the purest church? Having the best schooling? Avoiding the culture of the day? Whatever reason you might have for confidence in the flesh, whether it's your spiritual heritage, religious upbringing, family background, or schooling, all of it withers before Paul's. Paul will win that bet. Righteousness under the law, he says, blameless. We also need to be warned from Paul's example that it was Paul's zeal for God's law that drove him to commit his most heinous sins. As he says in verse 6, persecuting the church. There's an irony there that he's, according to the Judaizers, he could list that as an accomplishment. But we know elsewhere he lists it with great regret as his greatest sins. But what drove Paul to persecute the church? What drove Paul to try to force Christians to blaspheme, to hunt them down in their houses, to drag them into court and, and to witness their stonings? It was his zeal for God's law misunderstood, like the Judaizers, who had a zeal, who were workers, but without understanding. Paul says this in Romans, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of righteousness, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. These verses catalog Paul's attempt in his zeal and ignorance to establish his own righteousness, having not submitted to the righteousness of God. We must ask ourselves, are we like Paul? Have we submitted to the righteousness of God in Christ? Or do we, do we trust however little in the works of the flesh, in our own, uh, the best of human achievement that we can offer outside of God. Zeal is good, and the love of God is good, but zeal can be misplaced. That was Paul's former confidence. All of his advantages by birth and achievement. And we have to admit that it, on one level it is very impressive, but it, but it changed. It changed for Paul. And he calculates now their worth in light of the gospel. What gain can these things provide in relation to salvation? He continues that in verse 7 and 8. Read it with me. He says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. Paul's accounting changed. He doesn't see his past accomplishments the way the Judaizers do. You can imagine Paul sitting down with a Pharisee or with the Judaizer if they were able to have a calm conversation, one that didn't turn into an out-and-out fight 
you know, with anger and having him list out his accomplishments and then say something like verses 7 and 8 and having, having the Pharisee or the Judaizer say, how in the world can you think that? What, what changed your mind about the way that you saw all of these things? All of these things sound so good. He counted it all, it says in verse 7, loss for Christ, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul had met the risen Christ on the Damascus road. Remember when Paul was blinded by God, his eyes were opened to the glory of Christ. He's like, he's like Job in the Old Testament, who all throughout the book, even though Job is unaware of sin in himself, he, doesn't, he can't be convicted of sin, he doesn't know that he's done anything wrong. When God gives a greater revelation of himself at the end of the book, Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. When you think about this, that there are, there are angels in the throne room of God, as Isaiah records for us in chapter 6. There are seraphim around the throne of the glorified Christ who to sin has never even entered into their mind. They are so far removed from sin. All they do is worship God day and night and they veil their faces to the glorified Christ. The glory of Christ is too much for them to see. Paul was blinded by the glorified Christ on the Damascus road. What happened to Paul was that Paul got a different standard. Paul got a different measuring stick. Yes, compared to a sinful or a dissolute life, good works, the kinds of things that Paul lists out here are good. But compared to the glory of Christ, all our righteousness is, as Isaiah says, like filthy rags. When Paul saw Jesus, he understood that. Commenting on this passage, John Calvin says, quote, Why loss? Why consider it loss? Because they were hindrances in the way of his coming to Christ. Paul accordingly acknowledges that nothing was so injurious to him as his own righteousness, inasmuch as he was, by means of it, shut out from Christ, end quote. When Paul met Jesus, he learned that as regards to righteousness before God, the only hands that may receive Christ are empty hands. But it's not just his accomplishments, but all things, he says in verse 8, Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. All things are lost compared to Christ. And that, that verse shows us that it's not his identity or his deeds in and of themselves that are lost, in and of themselves that are bad. But the point is that to exchange anything, even the very best things for Christ, is a tragic loss. To exchange anything, even or maybe especially the very best things for Christ, is an inestimable loss. Calvin continued on the passage saying, 
But it is asked whether it's necessary for us to renounce riches and honors, nobility of descent, and even external righteousness that we may become partakers of Christ. Paul did not reckon it necessary to disown connection with his own tribe that he may become a Christian, but to renounce dependence upon his descent. It was not befitting that from being chaste he should become unchaste, that from being sober he should become intemperate, and that from being honorable he should become dissolute. Paul therefore divested himself not of works, but of that mistaken confidence in works with which he had been puffed up. End quote. Verse 8 shows us that Paul, Paul learned the lesson that Jesus taught in the Gospels in Luke 14 when Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Father, mother, brother, sister, your own life, these are good things. But Jesus says, if your love for him doesn't make your love for these things in comparison look like hatred, you cannot be my disciple. Paul knew that lesson. Paul exchanged his life, his very life for Christ. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In coming to Christ, Paul had given up Paul so that he might have Paul in Christ. Have you done the same thing? Are you like the man in the parables who sells all that he has with joy to gain the treasure in the field? Are you willing to sell all that you have with joy to gain the pearl? Are you willing to give up all that you have, all of the good things, to reckon them all as loss? For the sake of Christ. The challenge comes when we are unwilling to let go of certain accomplishments or possessions to follow Christ. We are far too often like the rich young ruler tempted to walk away out of our desire to hold on to that one last thing. Paul, on the other hand, shows us an example of a man who valued Christ rightly. And one of the great... One of the great temptations that verse 8 brings up for us is thinking that if there's something good in my life, if there's something even that God says is good, that God values, that He won't ask you to give it up in order to follow Christ. When we hear Jesus' call in Luke 14 to be willing and able to forsake anything to follow Jesus, we start to say to ourselves, I'll give up anything to follow Christ. And we, we say that silently in our mind. I'll, I'll give up anything to follow Christ. And then when we do it, we silently count up all of the things that God would never call me to give up in order to follow him. Yes, but Jesus would never ask me to give up that. Sure, I'll follow Christ because Jesus would never, would never want me to give up that. Here are some of the things that Jesus gives as examples in the Gospels, multiple times over, that can keep you potentially from following him. One of them is money. Being able to make ends meet. Putting food on the table. Another is family. Having peace 
with your brothers and your sisters, your mom and your dad, having a, having a pleasant Thanksgiving, a good reputation, being loved by the world and well spoken of. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that you are blessed if men revile you and persecute you for his name. These are all good things. They're not things to be despised. They are blessings even given from God. God rewards diligent working uh, with prosperity. God desires us to have love within our families. God desires us to be upstanding and and upright people. But the point is that Paul says in verse 8 is that he counts all things in comparison to Christ as loss. Paul said that he suffered the loss of all things, as it says in verse 8. And for him, that was literal. Remember the, remember the context. Paul is writing this under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, and all the food that he gets, all the clothing that he gets, all the friendship that he has is whatever people bring him when they, when they visit. Paul literally has nothing. He has given up all things to follow Christ. But he wasn't troubled. And if we want to be untroubled, if you want to be untroubled by the loss of all things, even good things, we need to be like Paul, you need to be like Paul, and meditate on what you have gained in Christ. What have you gained in following Christ? Look at verses 9 through 11. I count them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul and all those who exercise faith in Christ like Paul gain Christ himself. They are found, as it says in verse 9, in him. They are found in Christ. They know Christ. Notice that Paul relinquished his claim on some things in order that he might gain some one. It says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. These I have counted lost for knowing Christ. This means fellowship with Jesus, or union with Him. All that Christ has done in His life and death and resurrection and ascension is brought into your life by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We gain Christ. It means gaining a pure righteousness from God through faith, the very righteousness of Christ Himself. He says that in verse 9, that I may be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. To be found in Him means to have Christ's righteousness imputed to you by gift through faith. Not to come to God with your own pedigree and works, not to come to God with the kinds of things that are listed out in verses 4 through 6, but to come to God in and through His beloved Son as a loved child, to know God in a personal way. In his life and on the cross, Jesus not only atoned for our sins, but he offered to God the most perfect and loving and heartfelt obedience on your behalf. Paul explains this in detail in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He says, For 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the righteousness of Christ, our representative. You cannot add or subtract from this status that God grants you as a gift any more than you can reverse Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It does not depend on your keeping of the law or the purity of your descent, but on God's gift through His Son for you. Your verdict on the last day has already been rendered in Christ's resurrection. If you want to know what God thinks about you, look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a relief. That's the joy. That's the peace that Stephen could have and that Paul could not. You look to Christ in faith. Receive the righteousness of God by faith as you come to Christ in union with Him. And that joy, that peace, that, that love through the Holy Spirit that's been poured into our hearts is yours. Further, Coming to Christ means a close fellowship with Jesus in the present. Look at verse 10. He says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. It means to know Christ, the person, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit present in us. Not to know doctrines simply about Jesus, but to know Him. It's a very personal passage. Paul, I think this is the only place in the New Testament where Paul calls Jesus my Lord. It's a very personal knowledge of God. To come to Christ, to have Him, means to know Him as as a person, as the risen Son of God. Not to know Him as dry doctrine only, but to commune with Him in prayer and through the Word and through worship and through His people by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. It means to know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed, it says, to His death. Our union with Christ develops into a living communion with His death and resurrection. Our participation in Christ's death includes not only a definitive breach with sin, that's the power of the resurrection, that's what Paul says in Romans 6, that we, we were baptized with Him into death so that we might be raised with him so that we might walk in newness of life. I think that's what he means by the power of his resurrection, that sanctification, that, that, that break from the power of sin in our life, but also the sufferings that we undergo in this life by virtue of union with Christ. That's the fellowship of his sufferings. To know Christ means to be represented by him before the Father, yes. It means to know him personally by the power of the Holy Spirit in the present, but it also means to be conformed to His image. Paul desired this more and more. We ought to desire it more and more that we would be, that we would be like soft wax and Christ in His life and in His death and in His resurrection would be like the seal that we would be stamped in our very person and in the way that we live into the shape of Christ. That's what Paul says, to be conformed to Jesus, to be conformed even into his death. There is a sense which, for the rest of our sojourning in this life, will continue to bear the death of Jesus. That's part of the fellowship with him. The stinging reality of our Christian suffering is a reminder that we've been united with him. And more than that, is the very means that God uses to transform us 
and to the image of his son. We always think of that as a, as a future thing, that, that God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And it is, but it's, it's a present reality. God is conforming us into Christ's death. Final quote from Calvin. He says, This, however, is a choice consolation that in all our miseries we are partakers of Christ's cross if we are his members. And so through our afflictions, the way is opened up for us to everlasting blessedness. End quote. And that is the final result of such a close fellowship with Christ. In verse 11, he says this, If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I don't believe that Paul added the phrase there, by any means, because he was uncertain about his future, or that we should be uncertain about our resurrection or our future glory. But I think it shows how highly Paul valued the resurrection of the dead and his conformity to Christ in glory. When he says, by any means, you need to keep in mind, think about that Paul was willing to renounce all of his fleshly privileges, all of his external righteousness, and to suffer the death of Christ in his mortal body in an ongoing way, in order that he may have the glory of Christ in that very same body in the future. Christianity is not just a set of doctrines, but gaining Christ entire, as he says, that I may gain Christ. And we do, we do an injustice to think of Christianity as, as a set of doctrines that someone can, uh, can understand and master, instead of thinking Christianity is coming to Christ and being conformed to Christ. That is a radical thing. That is an even traumatic thing, that Christ's death would be impressed upon us as people so that we may have the resurrection from the dead. Coming to Christ isn't something to take lightly. That's why Jesus exhorts all who would come to him to count the cost. And so I think that's why Paul says, if by any means. Paul is certain that Jesus rising from the dead shows that he will rise from the dead. But Paul knows that, that to, to rise from the dead, he must follow Christ unto death. And that's true of every single one of us. We must be willing to be united with Christ by faith and be conformed into his death so that we may be conformed in the resurrection from the dead into his glory. Just as Christ was given the name above all names at his resurrection from the dead, we look forward to an inheritance from our Father, resurrected bodies, and a new creation. Those were the realities that Pastor Sexton preached about on Easter, that with perfect fellowship with Christ, all of these things are worth looking forward to, they're worth meditating on, and they're worth hoping in. We fix our mind on those things. That will sustain you and give you the grace and the endurance that you need to say with Paul that you will do whatever needs to be done by any means necessary to attain that resurrection from the dead through faith. That is valuing Christ rightly. This is what you have in Christ. That is selling all you have to gain Christ. These realities are yours by faith, just as they were Paul's. So where is your confidence today? Have you sold everything, even the good things, for Christ? Are you looking in faith and hope to the resurrection from the dead, to being finally conformed to the Christ whom you love? 
to receiving his righteousness by faith, from knowing him personally through the ministry of his spirit. Any confidence that the flesh offers is only a false shot at pleasing God. But the offer in the gospel is God. God in the flesh, come for you, given for you, so that you might know him, so that you might be righteous in him, so that you might be like him in the present and be with him forever. And all of this, as Paul says, is to be embraced by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glories of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you have given to us as a propitiation for our sins, and to know by the power of your Spirit here in the present, we pray that you would fix our minds on him and that you would conform us in our lives through the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, even to his death, that we might attain the resurrection from the dead with joy. Teach us to count all things lost. For the sake of your Son, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.